On your table, these, um, yeah, right? The, you have the, a preview copy of the DVD that were coming out. Now they're empty, so no point in stealing it and uh, taking it with you, as I know you all want to do. But this is the new DVD series that I've been working on <clears throat> this past year that's coming out. So Disciple Dojo, and I have some other of my sets, but I do these studies. They're for individuals or for small groups or for Sunday school classes. You put it in, <clears throat> you download a PDF of the workbook, you pop the DVD in, and it's 30 to 45 minute session. So an hour long Sunday school class could do one each time. And I've done one on the book of Revelation, I've done one on the Bible and science and the opening chapters of Genesis. I've done one on how to interpret the Bible, how to read it and make sense of it. This is one on um, what the Bible says about human sexuality in general, uh, forming a thoughtful, biblical, Christian sexual ethic. And that's something that our culture struggles with. It's something that our church struggles with. In fact, the first session of this, you can watch it free on my website. The whole first session is free. It's half hour. And it's called The Separation of Church and Sex. And it looks at the fact that for most churches, there is a distinct separation between church stuff and anything having to do with sex. And you don't talk about the two in polite company together. If you do, it's just about what you shouldn't do and what you should avoid and how not to do it. There's very little about the positive <clears throat> teaching of sexuality that is everywhere in Scripture. I mean, those of you that are here for Genesis, you saw how much sex there is in Genesis. And how, you know, the Bible begins with a marriage. It ends with marriage imagery. There's a middle of the book, Song of Solomon, is all about sex. So <clears throat> this course, there's a, 11 sessions, and uh, each one deals with, we go from beginning to end of what, what Scripture teaches about sexuality. And then the very end, the very last thing that we do is talk about the so-called controversial issues and things in our society that people have questions about, like uh, same-sex marriage and LGBT rights and all of that kind of stuff. Those are the things that most Christians or most churches that I've seen, when they address them, they jump right into those things. Like, here's what we don't believe, here's what we don't believe. So we intentionally uh, said in this study first, here's what Scripture teaches. Here's what we do believe. Here's what Jesus taught. Here's what the apostles taught. Here's what ancient Israel believed. Then, we, in the end, we look at, so what does that mean for us today in our culture, which is remarkably similar to the cultures that Israel found themselves surrounded by and that the apostles in the New Testament found themselves surrounded by. So this course, it's uh, 11 weeks. It, it would be you know, a couple of months' worth of uh, Sunday school material or small group material. But what I'd like, my goal is to get these and the other DVDs into the hands of churches, pastors, small group leaders, Sunday school teachers, campus ministers, people that minister to high school or college kids. This is not necessarily for high school age, although older seniors could probably take it, because we do get pretty racy at points in it. Uh, there's some blushing going on, which is fun, especially when we look at the imagery of the Song of Songs. But <clears throat> I'm trying to get this out into the influencers within churches. So any help you can do in doing that, the whole study, the entire study, like, you know, Small group studies used to be like two, three hundred dollars, and then you got to buy a workbook, and then there's a book, and then there's a devotional keychain, and then there's a church promo kit. There's all this nonsense. Whole studies right now is forty bucks for all of them. The, the the workbook included as a download <clears throat> when it releases, and tomorrow the first ones will be shipped out. Hopefully, when it releases, it'll jump to fifty, which is the normal price of my DVD resources on my website. So. I'm putting this out there, and I'm, I'm really emphasizing it right now to all of you because I have you here, and I can do that. <laughs> so I'm taking advantage of it. But it is, it is something we worked really hard. Um, came up with the course from scratch. 
uh, developed it over a few months, taught it last year, <clears throat> and then have been putting together editing the video quality. The audio quality is really good. The other ones that I've done, the audio and video quality is not great because it was all done in-house. This was actually done with HD cameras and separate mic tracks. and It's the closest thing to professional that I can put out right now. Um, but it's something that I would love every one of your churches at least to have a copy of in their library for small groups. So if you're interested, if you want to pre-order it, get it for 40 bucks instead of 50, you can see me right after. Uh, cash check, card, whatever, uh, I'll put you on the list and get one to you next week. Or you can just wait, order one from my website, uh, pay $10 more and ship it. Regardless though, all the funds go to this ministry, Disciple Dojo. So, um, this is this is a big part of how I hope to continue funding what we do here in this study is through the sale of these resources. So any help you could give in spreading the word, greatly appreciated because I don't have a marketing firm or a publishing house or a church where I can preach to thousands of people and sell my stuff to them every week. Uh, I don't have any of that. I have you guys, but you're awesome, and so I know you'll help me. <clears throat> now... Now that that's out of the way, let's get back to Leviticus and let's finish this book. We have been studying the book of Leviticus all year. Most people would never do that. Like the majority of people who have ever lived have not done what you've done. The majority of Christians who've ever lived have not done what you've done. But you've done it. And hopefully what you've done through this study of Leviticus is you've seen so many of the things that are foundational for Israel that the later prophets would point back to and that Jesus and his apostles would point back to. Remember when Peter was telling Gentile followers of Jesus in the Roman Empire how to live in the Roman Empire as Christians, he quoted Leviticus. And when, um, <clears throat> when, when the author of Hebrews is writing about the rituals and the things that Jesus accomplished on the cross and through his ministry, he cited Hebrews. I mean, he cited Leviticus a lot. Levitical imagery is everywhere. The Gospels pattern their, uh, their entire passion narratives around the books of Exodus and Leviticus in terms of Jesus and his sacrifice and, and the events leading up to it and, and the days that Jesus chose to deliver certain sermons on. You know, he would pick certain festivals that had to do with certain things and then he would give a message that was piggybacking on what those festivals were already about. But if we don't know those festivals from Leviticus, then we read right over that and miss it when Jesus does it. Um, <clears throat> so there's all kinds of stuff that informs the background of Scripture. And it also, Leviticus gives us the heart of the book is God does not live on Mount Olympus. God does not dwell in the underworld. God is not bound to the region of Canaan. And God is not manipulated by things that people can do or words that they can say. Rather, Leviticus gives us an entire different worldview that says, unlike all those gods of the surrounding cultures, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is a God who dwells in the midst of his people, who dwells among his people. And it's prefigured here in Leviticus because he, well, in the next book, Numbers, when they set up the camp, you'll see God literally dwells in the midst of his people. This whole tabernacle that Leviticus has been talking about and unpacking and exploring and, and going through the symbolism of that tabernacle is the center of the Israelite camp. Israel's camp is a big donut. Right? Who doesn't love donuts? Everyone loves donuts. Israel's camp is a big donut. And right in the center 
ringed around the hole in the donut are the Levites. And in the center of them, ringed around the tabernacle itself, and in the tabernacle are the priests who are a subset of the Levites. And then in the very midst of it, right at the gooey, creamy center, if we're keeping the donut analogy going, right in the center is this thing called the tabernacle, the mishkan, the tent. And the word means dwelling. That's where God dwells. Before this, they approached God where? top of Mount Sinai and they couldn't get quite close enough to him and only certain people could go certain ways up and then only Moses and Aaron could get to the very top and then only Moses at the very very top now that whole motif of what happened in Exodus chapter 20 is being transferred God is moving in to his people God is moving into the neighborhood there's a new resident in the middle of a new people who've been created Israel now, all of that is prefiguring. That's not the end in of itself. Torah, Leviticus was never the final thing God wanted. It was the first phase of what God wanted. The laws that he gave Israel were the first phase of his bigger plan. This is crucial to keep in mind. Because a lot of times we try to take the laws out and, and make them eternal or, or always binding. And then you run into contradictions when you get to the New Testament. And Jesus and the apostles start doing things that differ from the way they were done in the Old Testament, and you have to wonder what's going on, and, and so you do what some Christians do and say, well, the Old Testament's come, it's gone, it's over, just forget about it. Just give me the New Testament. And then other Christians say, no, the Old Testament is still binding, so we've got to contort the stuff in the New Testament to try to get it to fit into our legalistic view of the Old Testament in order to be good Christians. And so you get views like Christian Sabbatarians and Christians who try to keep the dietary laws because they think they're still binding and try to keep the Old Testament laws that they think are still binding, but others aren't, and then you have to come up with rationale for why some are binding and why some aren't. All of that comes from not having a clear understanding of God's plan for giving Leviticus and all of the books of the Torah in the first place. God's plan, those of you that have been coming here for three and a half years, you should know by now very well, God's plan was announced in Genesis chapter 12 when he called Abraham on the scene. Through your offspring, through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So everything God's doing in the Old Testament, including the book of Leviticus, including calling Israel out of Egypt, including giving them the tabernacle, is for the sole purpose of them continuing that promise that he made to Abraham's seed and thus being a blessing to the nations, being a light to the nations. And then in the New Testament, what we find is that plan, that long, zigzag, winding road of redemption comes to its completion, not its abandonment, not its abrogation, not its um, doing away, casting off, but comes to its completion when the one whom it all prefigures arrives on the scene. So it's no coincidence that John uses the language of Genesis to begin his gospel in the beginning. And it's no coincidence that as he goes on and says, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. English translations say dwell, but it's the word tabernacle, to dwell. John paints Jesus as the tabernacle with skin on. 
the walking temple of God. Jesus even flat out says, you're going to see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's a reference to Bethel in Genesis, where Jacob saw the, the heavens opened in that point where heaven and earth met. And Jesus says, you're going to see that in this guy. You're going to see that at the Son of Man, me. And then in the temple, you know, tear this temple down, I'll rebuild it in three days. And they think he's talking about a building. And John lets us know, no, 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 he was talking about his body, which is the temple. So all of these images, you know, Jesus providing bread in the wilderness is, is directly drawing from what's happened in Exodus. I mean, what will happen in Numbers, sorry. And Jesus, you know, doing his, like we said before, speaking certain ways at certain festivals, talking about springs of living water at the festival where water would be poured out and they would ask God for rain for the next season. You know, Jesus doing those things. This is my blood shed for you. Uh, the, the, this is my blood of the covenant. That was a direct allusion to the Passover meal where you hold up and say, this is the blood of the covenant. And Jesus says, this is the, my blood of the new covenant. So everything Jesus is doing is tied back to and rooted in the books of Torah and the prophets and the Psalms. So when we get to Leviticus, then what we're reading is the foundation in which Jesus and his followers will presuppose you are already familiar with in order for their ministry to make more sense, for more of those aha moments to click. Leviticus ends, the last chapter that we read, chapter 26, was sort of the climax where God gave the, the covenant curse blessings and the covenant curses in the form of an ancient Near East Suzerain Treaty. And just like in the other ancient covenants, you know, the blessings were good, the curses were worse. And it was like a contract, you know, you do your part, this is what you can expect from me, the great king. In this case, the king is God. You don't do your part. You rebel against the great king. This is what you can expect to happen. And God does that, but he does it on a cosmic scale. And because he is Israel's great king, he's Israel's leader, he's Israel's ruler. Israel will not have a king for hundreds of years. God is to be their king. That was what he desires for his people. <clears throat> and so he paints a picture of what's going to happen. And then he ends chapter 26 with this beautiful promise that even after his judgment has come, even after the people have been exiled and scattered and beaten down and judged seven times over for their sins and, and their rebellion, <clears throat> if they just turn to him in repentance, that's all it takes for his grace to restore and for him to fulfill all of the promises he made to him. And so it ends with this promise of grace in the last paragraph of chapter 26. And that would be a perfect way to end the book. And then there's chapter 27, which is just so dry. And so weird to come at the end of this book. Like you've just had this awesome climactic moment and the covenant has been made and the stipulations have been given and the promise of grace and it's a perfect ending. And then you're kind of back to some legal stuff. And it's really frustrating to a lot of scholars. In fact, many biblical scholars who read this passage they, and the ones who like to pick apart the text and say, well, this was probably written by somebody else. This is written by somebody else. And then they were hastily put together. And then so we can see the different sources. I find almost no value in that type of biblical interpretation um, because we don't have any of that stuff. What we have is the text that we've been given, and everything else is conjecture. And so rather than trying to figure out where this initially fell within the book and how it would have come to this point, I think it's much easier to say, well, this is the book that we've got. This is what was cobbled together, whether it was put together from previous sources or not. This is the book. This is the text that Jesus himself read and meditated on and taught from. And this, so what do we have here? What's going on in the text? 
<clears throat> and so we have this final section that almost functions like an appendix, but I think instead a better way to see it is as an inclusio, which is just a nice way of saying booking. Because Gen uh, Leviticus started with a discussion, five chapters of a discussion about when you bring your gifts to God, your sacrifices. And so now it's going to end with a discussion on the same subject, but from a different angle. Now it's going to end with not sacrifices that you bring, but offerings that you bring, vows that you make to God. So you know how in today's world, if you are, if there's an organization you want to support, like I, I drive down to Georgia sometimes, and along the way, I think it's in South Carolina, near Columbia, there's always a sign, I think it's in Columbia, I don't remember, it's somewhere along the way, it's a long drive, but there's a sign and it'll say, give us your used boat. And it's got this pretty little girl in a sailor outfit with a little short skirt and like called boat angels or something. And it's like, and it's basically give me, give us your boat that you don't use anymore. Because people always buy boats thinking they'll use them and they don't. They sit in the marina. So they tell people, look, give us your boat you're not using or your old boat when you buy a new one or whatever. And the goal of it is then they take that boat, they auction it, sell it for scrap, whatever they do with it. And then the money funds that whatever organization they're funding. I don't know if it's their own or if it's something else. But that's how a lot of charities work. You, you have a field. You have land. You, you deed it to something. Like if you want to give to a charity but you don't have money, you can say, well, I'm just going gonna, gonna to give this. I'm, I'm the deed to this land you can have. And then usually the charity or an intermediary party will then sell that and convert it to money, and then the charity will get that money in order to carry on its job, right? We're all familiar with this. If you leave a, an estate, right, you have all this stuff in your estate, you can leave it to a certain school, a certain ministry, um, you know, whatever, and then when you die, that will pass on to them, they'll, they'll auction it, they'll sell it, whatever, they'll get the money from it, and the money from it will be a critical means by which they carry out the ministry that they do. Well, that's not a new concept. Israel had that as well. The tabernacle had that as well. And people would do that. They would give to the tabernacle. And they saw it as giving to God himself. So they would say, in a moment of thanksgiving or joy, I dedicate myself to the tabernacle. Well, you as a person aren't super useful to the tabernacle because they've already got priests and Levites and people working, right? So it's kind of like if a bunch of people just showed up at, the, at a ministry you're doing, sometimes that's not a great, that, that can actually be a hindrance to what you're, you know, if you have a, a soup kitchen and 800 volunteers show up to, to dish out soup, those volunteers could be used a lot better in another capacity, particularly in writing checks <laughs> rather than serving soup. So that's just practical you know, that's just a practical reality. So what would happen then in Israel is you could vow, and, and, and your vow would be I'm giving, I'm, I'm dedicating myself, or I'm dedicating my offspring. If, if God, if you grant my favor, if you grant my prayer request, and it was, it was often done in the form of a prayer, but if you grant my prayer request as a sign of my thankfulness for that and about how serious I am with this, I will dedicate such and such to you. And even like you see at the beginning of the book of Samuel, you see Hannah, she's praying and she can't have a child and she wants a child so bad because of so many theological and cultural reasons. And she vows, she said, Lord, if you just give me this child, I will give him back to you. 
and he will he will live in the temple and he will serve in the temple. And, and actually, that's what happens. You know, Samuel's born and he serves under Eli. Hannah literally dedicates him and then leaves him there, and he grows up there working in the temple um, or working in the tabernacle. But before that, or you know, apart from that, people would do these types of vows in many different ways. They would vow their firstborn child, or they would vow their secondborn child, or they would vow their self, or their families, or their cattle, or their land, knowing that the temple, the tabernacle, doesn't, may not necessarily need the thing they're vowing, but it does need ongoing support for its ministry, for the Levites and the priests that work there and the work of God. Because remember, the tabernacle was also a storehouse the temple especially would be a storehouse later where the poor would come and get fed every third year from the tithes that were brought in. So it was like not just a religious thing. It was like a religious thing slash soup kitchen, you know, slash thrift shop, slash butcher uh, market, slash whatever. Like it was, it was kind of this functioning thing. So it needed funds to continue. But what's fascinating is that Leviticus ends with a discussion of how this will work if Israel does these vows when Israelites do these vows, but it never commands these vows to be made. Never once in the Old Testament is, is are vows commanded. Vows are regulated in this chapter, but they're never commanded. And later in the books, in, in like um, Ecclesiastes and I believe in Psalms or Proverbs, it'll talk about if you make a vow, you got to do it. It's, it's making a vow is a binding thing. So it'll even say, hey, it's better to not make vows. Don't make a vow in the first place because if you make the vow, you have to keep it. Because if you don't keep it, you are actually stealing from God. You've given Him something, and if you don't keep it, you're taking it back. You're stealing from it. Or if you vow something to Him, and then when it's time to pay up, you switch it for something of a lesser value, you're stealing from God. Malachi talked about this in the book of Malachi. He would chastise the people for doing this. And so... This section ends, the book of Leviticus ends with these regulations on vows. And, and it shows us that for God, it was a big deal if you vowed something. If you said, I'm going to give to the Lord such and such, then it was of paramount importance that you give that to the Lord or something of equal value. Not because God needs it. He'll say over and over, I don't need your sacrifices. I don't need your offerings. I'm the one giving you everything. But for the sake of the integrity of the person making the vow, for you keeping your word and being an honest person, and for the upkeep of, of for the benefit of those who will benefit from what you're vowing. You know, somebody tells me I'm in ministry, itinerant. So if they say, hey, we're gonna give you five thousand dollars this year, one, I would do backflips for joy. And then I would go, okay, awesome. And then I would do ministry with the mindset of I'm gonna be getting five thousand dollars so I can afford to do these things and whatever projects. And then for them to come and go, hey, just kidding, here's a hundred bucks. That really, really would hurt me. Well, that's kind of what God's addressing here is that tendency among people. You know, the whole idea of your eyes are bigger than your stomach. You go to a buffet, everything looks good. You load up your plate and halfway through you're like, can't eat this. And it goes to waste. This is the same kind of thing. In a moment of joy, in a moment of thanksgiving, people will make big promises. And then it's really easy to not follow through. So what God does in this last chapter is he holds his people to it and says, if you make these promises, you got to keep them. And this is what it's going to look like. So he ends the book with this, chapter 27. We're going to buzz through this and, and then we'll be done. 
The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, If anyone makes a special vow to dedicate persons to the Lord by giving equivalent values, set the value of a male between the ages of 20 and 60 at 50 shekels of silver. Now a shekel is about what you'd earn in a month. A shekel is about a month's income. So this is a significant price. This is not peanuts that we're talking about here. Uh, <clears throat> between the ages of 20 and 60 at 50 shekels of silver according to the sanctuary shekel. The sanctuary shekel is the standard, right? Everybody in the different villages may have their own shekel. The standard, the real one, the one that's, that counts. If it's a person between the ages of 5 and 20, set the value of a male at 20 shekels and the value of a female at 10 shekels. If it's a person between 1 month and 5 years, set the value of a male at 5 shekels of silver and that of a female at 3 shekels of silver. If it's a person 60 years old or more, set the value of a male at 15 shekels and a female at 10 shekels. If anyone making the vow is too poor to pay the specified amount, he is to present the person to the priest who will set the value for him according to what the man making the vow can afford. Right off the bat here, the question is, why are men worth more than women? Is this an intrinsic thing? Is God saying that women are less than men? No, because if you look at, if you look at the ages and how they're laid out, the, the, the price of a woman over a certain age, like an elderly woman, comparatively is much more than a man at that age. And a woman in childbearing years is less because she'll be doing childbearing stuff. And this is calculated based on the work a person can do. This is calculated based on the amount of labor that a person can do in sacrificing animals. You know, I don't know if you ever tried to slaughter and butcher a cow, but it's not easy. I mean, I haven't, but I know how big cows are. It's not easy. You know, you got cranes that do it, and slaughterhouses are just horrible, but there's like these conveyor belts and all this mechanics and everything, because those are big animals. And that's what you're slaughtering. That's what you're cleaning. That's what you're moving around. And the tabernacle itself, that's what you're packing, unpacking, etc. This is about manual labor and the ability of an average person to do manual labor. That's the price that God says, okay, fine. You want to devote yourself to me or you want to devote your family member to me symbolically. And what you really mean is then you'll pay into them. Then pay the amount of work that they could do if they were serving in the tabernacle. Is, is the closest analogy to it. But it's it's across the board. It's, it's you know, this much for men, this much for women, this much for this age, this much for this age. And so it's very much a methodical, it's what it's showing is God is not just about what you meant well. I mean, yes, he does honor the heart. And Jesus does say the woman that gave two pennies gave more than everybody else. That, that's true. But at the same time, when it comes to the functioning of his institution on the ground, there are practical needs that can be addressed practically. And so if you are wanting to give a vow, that is the purpose of it. Then God's saying, all right, then it's going to make sense to what goes on in the temple, which is what's needed, labor, you know, the ability to do work, things like that. So that's uh, the reason for the differentiation in the prices. Then he goes on to say, that's for people. Verse 9, if what he vowed is an animal that's acceptable as an offering to the Lord, such an animal uh, given to the Lord becomes holy. He must not exchange it or substitute a good one for the bad one or a bad one for a good one. He should uh, if he should substitute one animal for another, both it and the substitute become holy. If what he vowed is ceremonially unclean animal, one that's not acceptable as an offering to the Lord, the animal must be presented to the priest who will judge its quality as good or bad or judge its uh, 
its uh, value, praise it, basically. Uh, whatever the value the priest then sets, that is what it will be. If the owner wishes to redeem the animal, in other words, he wants to keep the animal and just give a monetary amount, uh, he must add a fifth to its value. If a man dedicates his house as something holy to the Lord, the priest will judge its quality as good or bad. The priest will praise it. Whatever value the priest then sets, so it will remain. The man who dedicates his house redeems it, in other words, buys it back, wants the house, but he'll give the money to the tabernacle, uh, then he must add a fifth to its value and the house will again become his. If a man dedicates to the Lord part of his family land, its value is to be set according to the amount of seed required for it. Fifty shekels of silver to an omer of barley seed. If he dedicates his field during the year of Jubilee, the value that has been set remains. But if he dedicates his field after the Jubilee, the priest will determine the value according to the number of years that remain until the next Jubilee, and its set value will be reduced. If the man who dedicates the field wishes to redeem it, he must add a fifth of its value, and the field will again become his. If, however, he does not redeem the field, or he has sold it to someone else, it can never be redeemed. When the field is released in the Jubilee, it will become holy, like a field devoted to the Lord. It will become property of the priests. This is how the temple, the tabernacle, actually would come and acquire some specific tabernacle-focused land that would then be used to provide either some animals or some crops to feed the Levites or the priests or whatever. So the idea of the people of God, the, the church, so to speak, owning and, and having uh, means that it uses to then carry on its work, it's not just a, a concept that came about in the Middle Ages. I mean, it does go all the way back in the history of Israel. God did allow his people, even his ministers, to be provided for through earthly financial means. That wasn't their sole survival. That, I mean, there wasn't their sole source of survival, but it was a part of how he helped fund what was going on. God has set up an economy of grace so that the spiritual transactions which take place in worship have corresponding physical uh, needs that need to be met. And it is very much, Paul will draw from this in the New Testament, he's telling his churches, hey, pay your preachers. These people are laboring to teach you and to preach to you and to, to pray for you and to nurture you and to shepherd you. So the least you can do is make sure they can eat without having to get another job that will take away from them doing that. Now that's a far cry from Creflo and his jet. But it's still, the point is there. You, you, you don't have to be living large to show God's glory. No, just the opposite. But you also, it's no glory to God if you're scraping by and can't afford to feed your family and, and, and have to work four jobs just so you can go preach on Sunday. So there's a balance there in between those two extremes, neither of which bring glory to God. The balance is found, I think, in what we see in Leviticus is that God, yes, he intends his people to minister, his, his ministers to minister to his people. But he also intends his people through their dedicated service to provide back for the people who are ministering to them in a way that's reciprocal and not woefully out of balance. So that everybody is taken care of in God's economy, but everyone is also working in God's economy, as we've talked about before. It's that balance between the whole welfare concept and you got to earn, you know, you eat what you earn concept. God provides for both of those. Beautiful balance in Scripture. So he goes on to say, verse 26, <clears throat> uh, no, verse 22, if a man dedicates to the Lord a field he has bought, which is not part of his family land, the priest will determine its value up to the year of Jubilee. The man pay its value on that day as something holy to the Lord. In the year of Jubilee, the field will revert to the person from whom he bought it, the one whose land it was. Every value is to be set according to the sanctuary shekel, which is 20 geras to the shekel. 
I know you all know what a gera is, so we won't even go into all that. Um, I'm just kidding, you don't, and I don't either. No one, however, may dedicate the firstborn of an animal. Why? Since the firstborn already belongs to the Lord. Whether an ox or she may buy it back, but at its set value, adding a fifth of the value to it, if he does not redeem it, it's to be sold at its set value. What God's saying here is, back in Exodus, God already established the firstborn of everything, person or livestock, is already God's. And there is a point where you buy it back. So you're a sheep herder. Your first sheep that, that, that gives birth, that first uh, animal is given as an offering to the Lord. And if you don't want to kill it, if you don't want to offer it and eat it and, and use its fur or whatever you do, if you don't want it to die and you want to keep it and put it back in your flock and continue, you buy it back. You redeem it back from God. He allows you to keep it. You pay the money that it's worth and then it goes back into your flock and you continue to raise it. But the concept is that first one already belonged to God. And the same with children, with people. God says when a firstborn when, when, when you have your firstborn child, that person belongs to God. And there's a ceremony where you would redeem, you would buy back symbolically your firstborn by giving that money to the sanctuary. So it's a powerful way of saying, God saying, hey, all of it's mine to begin with. And especially the first part, the best part is already mine. But I don't, I don't want child sacrifice and I don't need constant sacrifice if there's no reason for it. So you can buy it back from me. But the buying it back is telling, is making a very bold claim by God on the life of that which is redeemed. And that whole idea of redemption, we think of that as a spiritual term. That's a transaction term. Redemption is a monetary term. And that's what God uses to describe uh, salvation in the New Testament, being bought back at a price. So then we'll end. We're like a minute over. Let's finish up. Uh, nothing that a man owns and devotes to the Lord, whether man or animal, family land, may be sold or redeemed. Everything so devoted uh, is most holy to the Lord. No person devoted to destruction may be ransomed. He must be put to death. That has to do with harem warfare, which we're going to see in numbers. And it also has to do with someone who's been sentenced to die, who's murdered someone or done a capital crime. And God's saying you can't buy somebody off from that. If it's a capital crime, there's no redeeming that. The person pays with their life. We talked about that in Exodus. You can watch the video for that if you want to. Last one, a tithe of everything from the land. That's a tenth part. Whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. If a man redeems any of his tithe, he must add a fifth of the value to it. The entire tithe of the herd and the flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod, will be holy to the Lord. He must not pick out the good from the bad or make any substitution. If he does make a substitution, both the animal and its substitute become holy and cannot be redeemed. These are the commands the Lord gave Moses on Mount Sinai for the Israelites. The book of Leviticus ends. It ends with God saying, I am the one who ultimately owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I am the one who ultimately has claim over the rights of all firstborn. I am the one who supplies your needs. If you are going to give back to me, I'm going to hold you to that standard. I'm going to hold you to an integrity in giving. And there will not be these loopholes or ways to cheat the system in order to make something appear like you're giving to the Lord, but in reality you're making a little profit on the side. Which is exactly what Ananias and Sapphira did in the New Testament. God struck them dead for it. So Jesus criticized the Pharisees for the same thing. Oh, you dedicate this to the Lord and say, oh, well, sorry, 
widow or elderly parents, I can't take care of you because what I was going to give you, I've dedicated to the Lord. So I got a big uh, hurrah in the eyes of the community because I made this huge dedication at the expense of my parents who now have to beg for food. Jesus criticized that and said, that's ridiculous. So again, this is how Leviticus, it ends, it, it ends at the heights of, of theology and the covenant promises, and it brings it right back down to earth in the everyday God saying, don't forget, it matters how you live and how you give if you choose to do so. Get out of here because we're over time. We'll see you next week. I'll let you know what we're going to be doing for the rest of this month. And then in uh, November, we're going to have two weeks where I'm going. I'll be in India. And so we'll have somebody in teaching on my behalf. If you're interested in purchasing a preview copy of this or advanced copy, talk to me over here.